0: want to reiterate how blessed we are to have you in worship with us. I mean, what a privilege it is that you've trusted this community with your Sunday morning. We're very excited about that. I know for those of you that have been coming for the past few weeks, these weeks have been somewhat long. I mean, we've been preaching through vision. We've also been kind of working through the Word, and so I want to thank you for your patience. We've recapped a lot of things. This is our actual last week to kind of lay all this out there, so we'll kind of start some new stuff next week, and and so thank you for your patience. I know that we've kind of done some longer stuff, but it's been important. It's an important time in our life to be able to talk about what God is doing and where He's leading us and where we're going, and so um, we're going to wrap all of this up today, all this up today. But the series that we've been in is a series that we've titled Ecclesia, which is really the Greek word that's used almost exclusively in the New Testament for church, and it means assembly or gathering. And, and I've kind of mentioned so many times that, that oftentimes in our 21st century and even, you know, 20th and 19th century church culture, we've, we've attached the idea of church to building, place. We say we go to church, we leave church. But if you really look at the idea of church or community in the New Testament, we really see this gathering pe- gathered people of God. And so when the church gathered together, that was where the church was. Whether it was in the temple courts or in someone's home breaking bread, that was church. And we've talked a lot about the church that we're being called to be and that this place can't define us, a rented space doesn't define us, but when we gather together in someone's home for a meal or for Bible study, we're as much the church there as when we meet in the park or when we gather here on Sunday morning. We've really been unpacking sort of the church, the ecclesia that God is calling us To be. And each week I've shared several points. I've shared a a vision point and an action point, and then we've shared a teaching point each week. And we're going to wrap all those up today um, uh, just looking at where God is, is bringing us and where He is taking us. And so the the vision points I've shared were simply this. As we think about 2012 and all that God is leading us into, we've talked about a vision point being worship, that we want to be an authentic worshiping community that doesn't just worship in this little hour and 15 minutes on a Sunday morning, but instead worship kind of is is pouring out of who we are. Everything that we do is for God's glory. Every manapack that we make, every time we gather in the park, every time we meet together, everything that we do is for the worship and honor and praise of God, both Here, or when we gather just as couples in a life group, our entire existence is about worship. We talked a lot about how this place and space can't define us, and then over the next months, we're going to be looking at new venue opportunities so that we can do better things with children, which was our second kind of uh, vision point, which were Vine Kids. In 2012, as you can tell, we have a lot of young people. And in 2012, we're going to make one of our heartbeats how we love these kids in a relationship with Christ. We're going to be looking at adding to our kind of team, a Vine Kids director that will be able to love kids and parents, help parents understand their own relationship when it comes to discipling their own children, and loving kids into a relationship with Christ. Right now, our kids meet in a hallway outside the bathrooms, and we don't have a place for infants, and so we just really need to begin to think differently about worship space so that everyone, from the youngest to the oldest, can have the opportunity to encounter God when we gather in this place. We've talked about our third vision point, the one that we shared um, last week was really our heartbeat for mission, right? That we want to be a church that is engaged in the world, and that mission is not a program, but instead it's a perspective on life for us. It's the way that we see the world. It's the way that we see the guy standing on the street corner. It's the way that we see our neighbor, or our coworker, that we want to partner with, with missionaries and like-minded communities and churches and individuals all over the world. And we talked last time about how we really do that and that we talked about partnering with people and we talked about sending people and we talked about giving to people financially. And so we want to be a church where we send money and people and resources to support the move of God around the world. We talked about the idea that when we give dollars, we want a significant portion of our money to go right out our door. And right now, 10% of our dollars go into other gospel-centered mission and evangelism efforts. But in five years, we want to be a church that is at 50%, which means every dollar that comes in, a dollar goes out to impact the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We recognize that as a church plant, this is a, a tremendous undertaking but we are committed to increasing our giving by 5% a year until we hit 50% so that our dollars are impacting a global community that is reaching the world for Jesus Christ. We talked about what it means to be a community that's perspective is about mission. And, and our vision point for this week, our, our last one of these four, is really around the idea of community. One of the hallmarks that, that I really see in the New Testament when it comes to the church is that the church or the Christian life was not meant to be lived alone. We truly believe that Christian life was meant to be lived in community. God created us to live in community, and we can trace that theme from the Old Testament all the way up through the New Testament. Christians were meant to engage in life together. When we look at the book of Acts or Corinthians, as we're going to look at today, or Hebrews, and we look at the church and gathered places, they are doing life together. We talk about sharing life, and so our commitment in 2012 is to not only replicate life groups, the five that we have going, but to replicate those, but to create other spaces for us to do life together. Bible studies, um, book studies, heartbeats, where we can get together and share Life. One of the things that we want to do in 2012 is create a space for, for women to engage in life and study in the Word together. Right now we have a men's Bible study. We want to create a space where women can share life and heart and engage in that together. We want to create space on Sunday mornings where we can study the Bible together. Right now our, our time frame that we're allowed to be in Will Rogers doesn't even allow for that. So we want to really create community. We have, over the past few years, have sort of created a culture of attenders. And we want to break that culture and create a place where we share our lives, where we know each other's needs and heartbeats, and we share life together. So when we think about our vision for 2012, that is where we're going and where we want to be. So the question naturally is, what does your, my church need for me? So Treb, what are you really asking from me? I mean, if this is where you believe God is leading us and where we're headed, what do you need from me? Well, the vision points or the action points, excuse me, that we've shared over the past few weeks have been this, pray. We need you to pray. We have an enormous undertaking over the next 12 months to begin the process that it takes to become a gathered community. We've got some legal work. We've got some decisions to make as a leadership team. We just need you to pray. We need you to pray for your church and your pastors and your leaders. We need you to pray that God would um, just give us great wisdom. The more that we begin to put our feet in the footsteps of Jesus, the more the enemy will, fa- will come into opposition with the enemy. So we need you to pray. Right? We also need you to commit You know, as I mentioned, we've created a culture of attenders and we need to create a culture of people that are saying, this is my church. I will engage my entire life in it. I will be the face that people see. I will meet new people. I will bring people. I will be part of this community in a deeper way in 2012. I will say, you know, we've been here for a year. We've showed up on Sundays, but I want to put my whole life into this thing. So I want to find a place to plug in, I want to serve, I want to, whatever it is. I mean, we have avenues, you visit our community table, free to plug your life in. We need people to deliver bread to our first time guests. We need people that will come help us set up on Sunday mornings. We need people that will serve on our prayer team. We need people that will love our children. We need people that will engage this community on a deeper level. So we're asking you to commit. Last week we talked about, we need you to give. And we're not just talking about financial, we've been doing this whole series on giving your heart and your life and your resources. In 2012, we want you to make a commitment that says, okay, Lord, I will sacrifice for the church, for the community of believers. I'll talk a little bit more about that today. And then our action point for, for this week, the one that we really are asking you to sort of step into, is to invite. We need you to be our front door. Our marketing department is pretty lame. I mean, you're looking at it. And so we need you to invite your world. You know, it's, it's basically said, that studies show that, you know, when, when people invite someone to church, it takes six or seven invites to and get someone to actually come by the door, which means you've got to drive by our sign six or seven times, or you've got to invite your neighbor six or seven times before they ever really actually take you up on that invitation. So invite people to come, send the website to them, give them a card, invite them to be part of your life group or a part of whatever Bible study you're engaged in. It doesn't just have to be the Sunday morning. Invite them into your life. Have you and your wife or you and your husband or boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever, invite them to your place for dinner. Meet them, encourage them, engage with people, become our front door, invite your world. You know, the only way that people learn about our community is by your word of mouth the little hours that we have signs up here, the little once or two or three times a year that we actually do some kind of mail out, you know, those are not gonna be the pivotal points where people say, oh my gosh, I've I've gotta come. I mean, look at that sign, it's unbelievable. I mean, we we need you to invite the world. But hear me say this, we're not looking to invite the world so that our numbers will grow. I could care, I mean, I couldn't care less. We wanna invite the world because we want people to meet Jesus. At the end of the day, we want people to have an encounter with Jesus Christ and have their lives radically changed. That's why we want to invite the world. So I don't really care if you invite them here. Invite them into your world. Invite them into your life group. Invite them into your, you know, your heart. And then share the truth with them. So invite the world around you to be impacted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So. In a nutshell, if you were to glance at the back of your bulletin, you will see all these things laid out. These are our vision action points. These are the places that we're going as a church. We're not wandering aimlessly. We believe God is leading us. We believe he's calling us to be a church that is authentically worship-driven, that loves our kids, that is engaged in a perspective of mission both locally and globally, and that truly, truly lives in community. And we need you to begin to pray and to commit and to give and to invite to make this vision happen. So, that is who we are in a nutshell. And if you haven't caught all these sort of little vision casting messages, I encourage you to go by the website and listen to them. We kind of uh, make them much more lengthy at that place, so you can listen to them and really catch your heart. If you missed one in the middle and you're interested in what I had to say about mission, go listen to it. They're all up there on the, uh, the website. <clears throat> so last week, kind of, kind of now segueing, if you will, last week we kind of continued this four-week series by looking into the idea of giving our resources. We spent the first two weeks... Talking about giving our life and giving our heart. So what does it mean to give our entire heart to Jesus Christ and give our entire lives to the people around us? Because my dream for this community is that we would become a a community that was kind of engaged in biblical living and biblically generous living. That we would just say, man, we are a community that wants to give our lives away. Our lives to Jesus Christ, our lives to people, and our resources to the world. And so we engaged this conversation about resources last week. We began to talk about what does it mean to give your resource. And we recognize that everybody comes to church is always gets a little bit anxious about this time because it seems like the first time they visit, the pastor's always talking about money, right? Always. Just sort of the way life works out sometimes. But really what we're saying is that giving is much more than about resources, it's about giving your heart and your life. And we began this process by dividing this concept of resources up into two weeks. And last week I named the tension. And this week we're going to talk about how to relieve that tension. Because here's the tension. There is a constant tension, an everyday tension between God and your stuff. And we were real honest last week and we actually talked about it. We said the truth is, is that we live in a constant tension between God who wants our lives and you and I who want our stuff. And as much as we don't like to admit it, it's true. When I use the word stuff, I'm talking about all of it. I'm talking about bank accounts and retirement and cars, TVs and iPads and iPods and whatever it is that you think I'm not actually talking about, I'm actually talking about that. So whatever you're pretending I'm not saying, that's what I'm saying. Whatever your stuff is, that's what I'm naming. There is a tension between that and between God. And we talked about it because this, because there's a fundamental kind of thing inside all of us that really desires stuff right we have a desire culturally for things and we sort of named that kind of cycle that that desire leads us into we have a desire to want things we're kind of driven by that commercially every time you see tv it's telling your life is incomplete without whatever this thing is you know, you know that's true. Once Thanksgiving happens and you begin to watch the Christmases, Christmas commercials, you realize that your life is a disaster until you have that one thing, you know? I mean, and so we are driven culturally to want things. We're driven by that desire to want the things that our neighbors have. And as much as we don't really want to admit it, we really are. And and it's just varying degrees. If you're sitting here going, well, I'm not really driven by my desire for stuff, what that really means is you're not driven by your desire for certain stuff, right? We're all driven by it. So we are inclined to want stuff, right? That is just the way that our culture has wired us and our sinful nature has wired us. We are inclined to want stuff. We are inclined to try and acquire stuff. So we do what we need to do to get those things. We save our money. We work two jobs. We do whatever it is. We leverage ourselves. We put it all in the credit card. Whatever it takes to acquire those things. We're also inclined to accumulate stuff, right? We talked last week about how our houses, compared to the, the rest of the world, are massive, to hold our stuff. And we have garages that hold the stuff that our houses don't hold, and attics that hold the stuff that our garages don't hold. And we rent storage sheds to hold the stuff that our attics and garages and houses don't I mean, we are inclined to accumulate things. We do it with our money as well. Think about all the different avenues you have to save and store your dollars, bank accounts and, and 401Ks and mutual funds and stocks and bonds and gold or, you know, the, under the mattress, whatever your kind of system for accumulating things, we are inclined to desire and acquire and accumulate stuff. And then finally, we are inclined to love our stuff. I mean, I know you're thinking you don't love your things, but imagine, as I said last week, what your life would look like if we took your TV away or if we took whatever it was away. I mean, you are, you are inclined to love things, that's the reality number 1. The reality number 2 when it comes to the tension with our resources is that God wants to be first in our life. You cannot read scripture and miss this. God wants to be number 1. We see it from the from when he puts the commandments out in front of the Israelites, traced all the way through Jesus words to the pharisee. What's the first and greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. See, God wants to be first. So we've got this tension. We love our stuff and the cycle that leads us into and then we have God who wants to be first. In our lives. And then, as we look last week at Matthew chapter 6, we realize a third reality, which is we cannot love both. We cannot stand here in the middle and love our stuff and our money and love God. It just can't work. Matthew 6 tells us that we will either love one and despise the other. You remember that? You cannot love them both, God and money. You can't serve them both. So, that tension exists. It certainly exists in my life. The tension between my things, my stuff, my money, my desire for it. and You can label it however you want to. Maybe it's financial security or safety or comfort. I mean, just however you want to label it. And then God's desire to be first. And we sort of left everything at that last week. This is the tension that exists. Let's just name it, be honest about it, and not pretend that it doesn't exist. So how do we begin to relieve that tension? I mean, if this tension is every day battling God for our things or, or petrified that God is going to strip us of all those things, how do we begin to relieve that tension? Well, this week we're going to look at something that we actually looked at last spring because I really think it's the, the best way to look and understand how to relieve the tension between God's desire to have all of our lives and our natural inclination to love and, and kind of move towards a life that acquires and loves stuff. And so some of these things you may have heard, you may remember this passage if you were with us last spring. But I think it's the best way to begin to look at these things. So we're going to be in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. If you've got your Bible, I want you to pull it out. There's probably one laying around beside you. <clears throat> Before we open that together, we're going to pray. But if you've got one, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 1, we are going to talk about how to relieve the tension between God and God's desire for our lives and our desire for stuff and things. So go ahead and mark that, and then let's pray together, asking God to prepare hearts. God, we recognize that an encounter with you is a powerful thing. We recognize that it's world-changing and life-changing. We recognize that it's not always comfortable. Sometimes we talk about money. Sometimes we talk about resources. Those things can be uncomfortable. But, Father, we pray that as we open your word this morning that you would teach our hearts, that you would convict us, Lord, that you would give us a powerful word that would speak truth into our lives. Go ahead and just pray for yourself right now. Just pray for that God would move in you, that he would convict you, that he would challenge you. I know those are hard things to pray for, but, but just try it. Just say, God, convict me, challenge me this morning with your word. Pray for someone beside you, even if you've never seen them before. Just be in the habit of praying for other people, and just pray that God would move in their life, that that he would just move in them. God, we know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. And Lord, we recognize that we can't make sense of these words unless you reveal truth to us. So, Father, we pray that you would penetrate our hearts and reveal your truth to us. We pray, God, that you would be glorified and that you would move in our lives and that these words would be real and powerful and that they would be sharp and that they would penetrate and that, God, as a community, we might be moved, moved, Father, to celebrate you, to give you our hearts and our lives and our resources for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 is actually a really fascinating piece of text. All right? It's fascinating and I love it. And I want to give you a little bit of background so you can understand the depth of it before we sort of dive into it this morning. Paul is writing this letter to the church in Corinth. Okay, so both the 1st and 2nd Corinthians letters were written to the church in Corinth. And Paul is sort of pleading with them to help by giving money, resources to help the church in Jerusalem. So the church in Jerusalem was actually facing this incredibly severe famine. And they were starving in some cases. And so Paul is right in the church in Corinth who is experiencing a little bit of blessing and saying, we need you to support and help and give the church in Jerusalem. Because the idea being, there is just one church. There's not multiple denominations and all these things. We are all one under Jesus Christ. And when one suffers, we all suffer. And so he's right to the church in Corinth saying, please, help by giving these believers in Jerusalem are almost starving there was a famine that was sweeping across the entire Roman empire and it had hit Jerusalem and there was no food to be found they were starving and so Paul's writing to the church in Corinth saying please help them out and in these verses he actually lifts up he lifts up a church in Macedonia saying look at what the Macedonian church is doing now, you've got to understand what the Macedonian church is going through. The Mas- Macedonia was an area just north of the Greek peninsula. It was actually the first converts in, in Europe after Paul's second missionary journey. It included churches like Philippi and Thessalonica. I mean, these were, these were churches that were growing. But, but Macedonia was in a, in a terrible place itself, okay? What was happening was the land was ravaged by a civil war. Most of the land was kind of abused, there were no resources, the Civil War had sort of destroyed the country, destroyed the entire region. In addition to that, some scholars believe that a natural disaster had kind of come through and wiped out a lot of the resources. They're not sure if it was an earthquake or, you know, fire or whatever, but, but the, the land was just, just almost destroyed. And to add to that, the Macedonians were facing extreme persecution to the point of death. I mean, if you were a believer in Jesus Christ, you were being persecuted to the point of death. And so, in Macedonia, they were facing, you know, land that was ravaged by civil war, no resources to be found, food that was hard to be found on their own, land that was, that was torn apart by a natural disaster, and persecution, the fact that if you believe in Jesus Christ, every day you wake up may be the day that you are arrested or beaten or killed. Now, these are not everyday problems. You and I don't wake up every day and face these things. We wake up every day and face, you know, finances are tight or my light bill is expensive or, I, you know, I, I, my job's kind of, it's on the edge of kind of getting eliminated or whatever. And those are big deals. I don't want to downplay those. But the struggles the Macedonian church were facing, were, were they were just massive. Yet Paul lifts up the Macedonian church as an example of what it means to give. So let's look at this together and then we'll kind of tear it apart. <clears throat> Verse, chapter 8, verse 1 of 2 Corinthians. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded... They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing with the service of the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So Paul says, listen, as he's pleading with the Corinthian church, he says, I want you to understand something about this, this Macedonian church and the way that they're giving. And he uses them as an example. And he's saying, look, they have given out of this extreme generosity. Their giving is one of extreme generosity. Generosity. Now I think that most you and I understand the idea of giving out of abundance. We've been kind of culturally raised to think that giving out of abundance is what we do. I mean, even from kindergarten on, once I've had mine, I will give you what's left. Right? If, if I've had my fill, then sure you can have whatever's left. We give out of abundance. And so we even kind of carry that into our world today. We make sure that, that we have all that we need financially and in a security way. You know, kind of a, once we get all those bases covered, then we give. But when you think about how the Bible looks at giving and resources, we see actually an entirely different model. We don't see a model of giving out of abundance. But we give it, see giving as a model that's giving out of sacrifice. So here you have this Macedonian church that is facing extreme poverty. They're facing extreme persecution. And Paul lifts them up and talks about their generosity. And what I find really powerful in this is that they weren't generous in spite of the things that they were doing. They weren't generous because, you know, they were kind of angry about and so they're like, look, if we're going to lose it all, we might as well just give it all, right? But it was because of those things Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. They gave because their their situation challenged them to be generous. If they were followers of Christ and we were facing poverty and trial, it says that they had extreme joy in the middle of that. And they wanted to be people that gave. They were incredibly generous. Listen what else the Macedonian church was. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. So they were generous and they gave beyond their ability. Now, this may sound really great in the Bible that people gave beyond their ability. But there's a reality here that we have to understand. The Macedonian church didn't have anything to give. Everything that they had probably needed to go back into their own lives or their own community to restore their own community, to restore their own lives, to put food on their own table. But they gave beyond their ability to give, which means they reached in deep sacrifice and gave. I remember um, when we were in Uganda a few years ago, I was sitting in this little church and, and I was going to be preaching in this little small rural church. And it was about a three hour drive from where we were, and they, they drove me out in this countryside and down these roads and off this bus, and then on the back of this little kind of uh, truck because our bus got stuck and we 're down here and i 'm sitting in this little church dirt floor and, and i 'm sitting there, and, and they kind of had split our whole team up, so it was really just me and the, the lady that had come from our team with us, they had taken her to a separate little church about you know half a mile away, and so I was sitting there and it's a church full of um, of Ugandan men and women and, and most of them were were coming out of, of really kind of incredible situations of poverty. They were living in little thatched roofs huts and all those kind of things and I was there and, and I was ready to preach and, and they, the pastor had kind of set this thing up and they were taking the offering. And I remember this this woman who you, you could tell, I mean she was just, life had been hard on her. I mean she was old and poor and you know her clothes were torn and she was sitting on the very front row of this little church outside um, uh, as she had been sitting outside, she moved away in and sat on this little front. She had a sack with her, a sack of, it was a little black sack, and I couldn't quite tell what it was. But as the offering came around, they passed this little basket. I watched her pull this sack out of uh, her bag, and she took out of that sack these four ears of corn, all right, ears of corn, and she placed them in the offering plate. Everyone else was putting a couple of coins in or, or whatever they could, but this woman took these four ears of corn, and she laid it in there, and I thought, oh, that's really interesting. You know, I've never seen anyone put anything in the offering plate besides dollars. I mean, in the U.S., that's what we do. Even in my travels all over the world, I've never seen offering really be given in, in anything other than, than financial ways. But she put these ears of corn in there. So the, the little worship team got up and they were singing some more songs and the pastor was sitting next to him and he leaned over and he said, you see that woman down front? And he spoke English and I said, I, said, I do. And he said, you know, she's been in our community for years. She's a widow. Her, her husband was murdered um, by the LRA. And, and he told me, that the church does everything they can to take care of her because she was so old, she couldn't work, she couldn't farm the fields. And he talked about the fact that those ears of corn were given to her and were probably all that she had to eat herself. But she put them in the offering because she knew that somebody in the church needed them more than she did. And I thought, who needed them more than this woman? I'm mean, here, she's a widow, she can't work the fields, yet out of her kind of sacrificial giving, she placed these things in this little Offering plate to give to someone else that might need them more than she did, and as I looked at that pastor, my heart was just was just broken because of the way that I I give solely out of my excess. I never give in a way that costs me anything, and I watched this woman place these ears of corn in there, and I just thought the church was going to take those and give them to someone who was starving or needed them, and here she was willing to give well more than she was able. She was not able to give that. That's her own food. She gave it away. Well, the Macedonian church is living in a similar circumstance. Paul says they gave beyond their ability, more than than anybody thought they could possibly give. He says, For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their own ability, entirely on their own, and then they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service of the saints. Now, I love this, because they gave on their own and they consider it a privilege. Now most of us give, not all the time, but a lot of times in our lives we give because we feel really guilty. Like the pastor got there made me feel bad, and so I didn't really want to give the whole twenty. I was gonna try and make change when the plate went by, but I know that's bad, and so I put it in there. And I'm kind of bummed that I to give the whole thing. Or that I go to work and my coworker is like, "Look, my nephew's trying to raise money for the walkathon," and and so everyone else is kind of giving, and you really don't want to give because you don't know her or him, and you really don't know their nephew, and so you are thinking, well, "I don't really want to do that," but I kind of have to because then I don't want to look at them every day and realize you're the only person to give to the walkathon, and so you give out of this sort of what's the least kind of bit I can give or. You come to that magazine when that kid comes in your neighborhood and he's got popcorn and, you know, he's doing stuff for his school or for Christmas. And you're going, what's under $8, you know, because I sure don't want the $40 cookie cutters. And so, you know, we usually give somewhat out of that sort of kind of guilt on some level. And there's always sort of that, if I don't, I'm just going to feel bad. And, 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 but see, what the Macedonian church was doing was they were giving, they were giving out of a different place. They were giving out of this deep joy. And I love this because it says that they urgently pleaded with us for the opportunity to give. Which means that Paul or one of the other apostles had probably tried to talk him out of it. Going, listen, you guys are struggling. You are wrestling. You are poor. Keep your resources. Put them back into this community. Because after we give an offering for the Jerusalem church, we're going to be taking an offering for you. But they pleaded with Paul. They said, please, let us have the privilege of giving to the saints. And they considered it this great joy. And I really love that because you get the sense that it's almost like, look, don't strip us from the joy of what it means to give. Giving wasn't coming for them out of a place of guilt. It was coming out of a place of joy. When you give, and not just of of your finances, but when you give of your life, is it coming out of a place of joy? Or is it coming out of a place of kind of a have to? See, I shouldn't be living life as if I have to give, but instead that I get to give. They pleaded with the opportunity to give to the community. They plead with the opportunity to give to other believers. I mean, what a different picture we have. You know, what a different picture we have in our churches today. The church is usually pleading with believers, please, our budget's this, we're struggling, we have to have you give. Think about increasing your pledge. That's how we usually see church. And then we feel bad, and so we give more. And, and what a broken biblical cycle. But what if we found the great privilege in giving to the community? Knowing full well that our dollars that you give to part of this community and to the church are impacting the lives of people. Those are taking care of people's needs and they are helping us love people to Christ and they are supporting people around the world that are huddled in these small African huts loving people to Jesus Christ. What a privilege it is for my dollars to impact the world around me. But all that, all those things that the the, the Macedonian church was, they were generous, they gave beyond their ability and they gave with great joy and they considered it a privilege all that to say this in verse 5, which I find really powerful. Verse 5 says this. It says, And they did, they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to keeping with God's will. And then in keeping with God's will. Here's my thing. Over the past four weeks, we've been talking about giving, and, and we've really been talking about giving our hearts and our lives. See, the Macedonian church even surprised Paul when they gave their lives first to the Lord and then to the kingdom. See, it wasn't about their resources and what they give because I'm I'm betting that even when the Macedonian church gathered up all the stuff they had and gave, it wasn't a lot. They had nothing. But what they gave was they said, God, we gave our lives first to you and then we gave it to the kingdom of God and then everything else came third. We came third. They saw their life as a church that first gave themselves to Jesus Christ and gave themselves to the bigger kingdom picture and then their own maintenance was third. See, when I talk about generous biblical living, this is what I'm talking about. I want to be a church, a community that says, God, you get get first our entire lives. You get it all. And then we're going to give our lives to the kingdom of God. That it's not just about the maintenance and preservation of this little community, but instead about what you're doing around the world and in the lives of people. And then we'll worry about ourselves somewhere else down the road. So here's this tension we named last week. There's a tension between God and our stuff. We look at that church in Macedonia, and I'll tell you how you relieve the tension. I break it down to to these quick little three little things. God gets the first, He first gets our lives, our hearts, and our resources. In your own life and as a church, God should get first. God should get first above everything else that goes. God should get what is first, especially when it comes to your resources. We don't take our resources and give everybody else what they should get and then give God what's left over. That actually creates the tension. When we give everybody else first, whether it's bill collectors or whether it's people or whether it's our own desire to to kind of acquire and accumulate and love stuff, when we give ourselves first and people first, we create and add to the tension between our stuff and God. But when God gets first, it's the first step in relieving that tension because God wants to be first in our lives. So when we think about our resources, you wanna break that tension, God should get first. Not out of excess, not out of abundance, but God should get first. God should also get the best. The second point in the ability to relieve that tension is God gets the best. A lot of times we give God the leftover remaining dregs of whatever's left of our lives and our resources and our hearts. And sometimes we do that on Sunday mornings. We drag ourselves in here not really wanting to be in here. We sort of half-heartedly listen, half-heartedly sing. And God does not get the best of what we have to offer. God gets somewhere around the last third. I mean, how many of us are guilty of that, of sort of not wanting to come in and worship, not wanting to be a part of what God is doing, dragging ourselves in here, realizing that we are giving God far less than the best of our lives? When it comes to our resources, God should get the first and the best. When it comes to our lives, God gets the first and God gets the best. Is God getting what's best in your life? Is he getting your best time? Or do you find once a week to kind of crack open your Bible in that four minutes between this or that? Does God get the best of your life when it comes to your prayer time? I mean, most of us, if we're real honest, God doesn't get the best of much in our lives. Our own desire for ourselves and whatever usually takes the best. The best time, best of our resources, best of our heart. You want to break the tension between God and your stuff, you give God first and you give God the best. And then finally, as we see in the Macedonian church, in all things, ridiculous joy. I mean, think about that for a moment. This Macedonian church, struggling and fighting and flailing for their very survival, finds incredible joy in giving their lives, first to the Lord and then to the kingdom. When's the last time your life has been driven by your joyful desire to give? your joyful desire to give money, your joyful desire to give your life. Almost to the place where it's kind of ridiculous. Like as a worldly standpoint, when we look at this thing from the world, it's ridiculous that the Macedonians are that excited and joyful about giving. I mean, they should be mad and angry and frustrated that they're stuck in a land of civil war, without food, natural disasters, you know, persecution. If anything, they should be looking at God going, where are you? God, we are struggling here. We've got nothing to eat. Our land is ravaged. And every time we proclaim that we're Christ followers, someone gets arrested and killed. In our culture, we would be complaining, saying, God, you are absent from our lives. But in the middle of all that, the Macedonians said, Man, this is the greatest place to live. And we will find great joy and privilege because God gets the first and the best of everything that we have. Is your life filled with joy? I mean, really deep, kind of ridiculous joy, the kind of joy that shouldn't be there, the kind of joy when things should be tough, but instead you find the fact that God has given you life to be that sort of soul-driving joy. God gets the best and God gets the first in, in all things ridiculous joy. This is what we've done over the past four weeks. We've unpacked this idea of giving in terms of our hearts and our lives and our resources, and it all boils down to this. When it comes to your life and your heart and your stuff, God gets first and the best, and we do it with joy. So here's what we're doing this week. All, all that to bring us to this kind of really powerful place. For the first time as a community and stepping into our own life together, we are now responsible for our own financial life. We have to be responsible for how we live in the world around us. i talked all about that the past couple weeks. You can go back and listen if you want to. But starting at the end of 2012 and beginning in 2012, excuse me, all the way from then on, we're responsible for how we live together, for our own financial life. So we've been talking about pledge cards and kind of what that means. And if you're here for the very first time, hear me say this. We do not want you to fill out a pledge card. This is really for our community and how we feel about doing life together. So do not worry about that, okay? Don't worry about that. But this is how we do life together is begin to think about how we provide for the way that we live and live in the world. And so we've been passing out pledge cards and talking about pledge cards and all that's kind of accumulating today, but but it's more than just about money for us. Because our heartbeat is that you would meet Christ and he would radically transform your heart. And that's all we care about. Don't give us a dollar until you give your life to Jesus Christ. So you have two things in your possession, hopefully. You have a pledge card, if you're a part of our community. If you're a visitor, you can pretend you didn't get it. And you've got a, a little offering card. It's, it's a card that looks a little something like this. It came with your bulletin. It says see at the top. It's got the verses we've been working through. I'm going to invite the band to come back up as we're doing this. But it's got Romans on one side and uh, Matthew 6 on the other, which are the verses we've been working through the past few weeks. Here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to turn our offering time as, as a way of, into a way of really offering God our first and our best. And we're going to find a way to do it with really great joy. And we're going to create as part of our, our time together to offer the Lord all that we have and all that we are. So as part of our, our life-giving process this morning in worship, what we're going to do is don the band or kind of lead us in this moment of worship. And then I'm going to invite you to use these two things. I'm going to invite you if you're part of our community to fill your pledge card out if you haven't already. And I'm going to invite you, even if you've done that, and even if you're new, to take this card right here and and personally write things on there to the Lord. We're not going to use them. We're not going to look at them. I'm going to throw them all away. This is between you and Jesus. But I want you to write the things down there that you're ready to offer to the Lord. Maybe you need to confess some things. Maybe you need to write some stuff down on, on the ways that you have been fearful or afraid. Maybe this is you getting, God, I've not given you my best or my first in my life, and here's why, or here's what I need to do. Whatever you want to use this space for. I want you to find moments to do that. We have a table right here that has these cards and pledge cards and pins. Tim and Julie have some of those down here as well. We want you to find one of these things. And while the band is sort of leading us in this worship time, we want you to fill this out mainly for you and Jesus. And then as you feel led, as you feel called, and as you feel moved by the Holy Spirit, we want you during this song to make your way down and we want you to put it in these baskets. This card and your pledge card. You know, the idea being these harvest baskets are really what are used to gather the fruit of our labor. And we believe that God is going to gather the fruit of our labor and impact the world around us. And so part of our offering this morning is saying, God, I want to give you the first and best of my life, both financially, but really with my heart. And if I've been holding anything back from you, Lord, I confess these moments to you and I lay my heart at your feet. And together as part of our worship time this morning, we're going to sacrifice and offer these things to the Lord. Our hearts and our lives and our resources. Proclaiming that God is the God of the universe and he gets the first and the best. And we're going to do it with great joy. And these moments, as you're filling these things out, I don't want you to do it begrudgingly. If you're doing it begrudgingly, don't fill it out. But find a way to do it in joy. And that means if you need to sit there and wrestle with God and ask Him to change your heart, then do that. Take the moments as part of your worship. Remember, worship is not about songs we sing. It's about the condition of our hearts. Fill these things out. And then as we begin to worship and you feel led and motivated, get up, put these things in the bucket as a way of offering, a physical sign of saying, God, I am offering my life to you. Let's pray. And then let's prepare to meet God in worship. Lord, we are deeply grateful for the fact that you gave us your son, Jesus. We're deeply grateful, Lord, that we're really, Lord, that you are more than we can imagine or fathom. And we confess, God, in these moments that we have not given you our best and we have not given you first. And Lord, most times we don't do anything with joy when it comes to you. Sometimes we struggle. Sometimes we wonder why life is so hard or why our finances are so tight or why this person around me is struggling so much or why my life seems to be riddled with frustration. And if anything, sometimes God, joy is the last thing that kind of penetrates my heart. But God, I know that you love me so deeply, so powerfully that you are calling me to give you my life. And so this morning, Father, I personally, Trev, I offer you my life and my heart. And God, I pray that we pray that same prayer together. And Father, maybe we filled out a card already as we were sitting there and maybe we need to tear it up and do it again. Maybe it wasn't honest and maybe it wasn't the the true thing that you're calling us to write down there. Maybe you're asking for more from our life. Maybe you want us to actually specifically name some things and be honest with you. So Father, as we fill these cards out this morning and we sacrifice... we do it with our best and our first we pray that you would give us great joy and that we would celebrate and that we would sing and that we would offer and as we make our way to that basket this morning God it would be with great joy and that there would be a freedom relieving tension that would come over our hearts and we laid those things in that basket God that we would claim freedom in Jesus Christ and that as we let go of those things whatever card it may be God that you would give us liberation and joy and freedom in the name of Jesus God, we commit this time to you as we take an honest look at our lives and we worship you in spirit and truth. In Jesus' name.
1: This is uh, not a worship course that we normally do, but um, it's kind of loosely based on some of the sayings of Jesus and then also the 23rd Psalm. And it's just all about celebrating resting in God's love and his provision, that he takes care of us. So just kind of soak in it and let it be your prayer. Let it get into your heart. Heavenly Father, you always amaze me. Let your kingdom come in my world and in my life. Food I need to live through the day And forgive me as I forgive The people who wrong me Lead me far from temptation Deliver me from the evil I look out the window The birds are composing And not a note is out of tune Or out of place I walk to the meadow And stare at the flowers Better dressed than any girl On her wedding so why should I worry why do I freak out cause God knows what I need he knows what I need cause your love is your love is your love is Strong, your love is, your love is, your love is strong. Your love is, your love is, your love is strong, and the kingdom of the heavens is now advancing. Invade my heart, invade this broken town The kingdom of the heavens Is buried treasure Will you sell yourself to buy the one you found? And two things you've told me that you are strong and you love me yeah you love me your love
0: As we have the opportunity to close our time in worship. I, I pray that you would continue to deal with the Lord and if there's things that you need to lay down, then that we would continue to do that together this morning. And if, you have, if you're uncomfortable about any of this stuff, then please just hang on to it and deal with the Lord. A heartbeat is that you would meet him first. We have the opportunity to celebrate as a community this life-giving, freeing love in Jesus and that my prayer is that as you laid those things down, that you might feel the redemptive peace that comes from trusting and having faith that God will never let you go. That he gets our first and our best and he gets the joy. So let's stand together and close our time out in worship this morning by celebrating the goodness of God, the freedom of who he is and what he's done in our lives and that he may get all that we have to offer as a community. If you're not a singer, I pray that you would sing and if you're not a mover, I pray that you would move that God would, would get all of our lives and there would be a ridiculous joy that sort of moved its way through our community this morning as we gave our hearts and lives to the Holy Spirit. Saying, God, we trust you with our very lives and future. May you be glorified in all that we do. Let's close our time in worship. Rich or poor, God, I want you more than any.